Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Toronto. My name is Kingsley. I'm one of the ministry directors here. One of the things I love about Sunday services where I get to preach is standing right over here and listening to the chatter. I, I wish my Thanksgiving family gatherings were this rowdy. It is great. It's life-giving. Speaking of life-giving, at this time, we're going to give our attention to the reading of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series in First Peter. In our first week, we talked about the church being a resilient church. In our second week, we talked about the church being a holy church. Today, we learn that the church has an illustrious identity and a glorious identity and also a peculiar purpose. And so, to help us with the reading of God's Word, I invite Dilip. Dilip. Okay, so today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you now are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we say thank you for your word today because your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It does things, Lord. It does things to the human soul that the mind cannot comprehend. And so, Lord, as we meet with you through your word today, we thank you for what you will be doing. And now we ask, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder, I wonder, have you ever met the Pearson family before? Jack, Rebecca, Kate, Kevin, Randall. If you haven't met this fictional family yet, you can in NBC's hit drama, This Is Us. This Is Us is an Emmy award-winning television series that took the world by storm as we followed a family story through trial and tragedy. It's a show that chronicled a family's wandering towards self-discovery and renewed identity as they tackled gut-wrenching themes like death, addiction, abandonment, insecurities, including physical, emotional, and professional. Time Magazine described the show as a cathartic vehicle for exploring the scars that shape us. And reflecting on its success, Mandy Moore, one of the actresses, once said in an interview, I think, I think this is us, is a success because it is us. It mirrors people's lives back to them and then comforts them in their journey to uncovering who they really are. When faced with hardship, it's natural that our identities get shaken, and it's natural for us to look for footholds to try to ground us in our identities. And for the ancient church that Peter is writing to, 
and the present-day church today, which is facing increasing hostilities and struggles and hardship, Peter gave us a letter, a letter that will mirror our lives back to us and comfort us in our journey to discovering who we are, helping us explore the scars that shape us, that's Christ's scars, and declaring this is us. Peter in our text today helps us, and he helps us to embrace our illustrious identity and engage our peculiar purpose. These are our two points today. First point, embrace our illustrious identity. Second point, engage our peculiar purpose. Let's look at our first point, embrace our illustrious identity. As we look at verse 4, Peter tells us who we are and what we are to God. To God, he says, we are a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Look with me to verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Why? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Helping us see what our natural eyes can't see, Peter helps us see what God sees. We, all of us, are living stones being built up together into a spiritual house. In the Greek, the word spiritual house should come draw to mind a couple of things. Uh, firstly, it should draw to mind the idea of a dwelling place, a place for a family to come together. Furthermore, the idea of a priest dwelling in that house should draw that idea, take that picture and drive it even deeper. Most scholars believe that Peter is making a reference to the Old Testament temple, and the temple was known for being God's dwelling place, but also known for its architectural perfection, its thoughtful design, and its unrivaled beauty. The intricate woodwork, unparalleled stonework, and even elaborate use of gold made it a wonder for people to behold. My, what beautiful stones we see here is what a disciple said in Mark 13. What Peter wants us to see is that the church is a dwelling place not just for anybody, but a dwelling place for God and his people. And it's going to be a beautiful dwelling place. The word spiritual is important to recognize too. Uh, most of us, when we hear the word spiritual, what do we think? We think immaterial. But if you look at the New Testament, that's actually not what spiritual typically means. Uh, one scholar, John Murray, he writes that Christians often make the mistake of thinking spiritual means immaterial. But in the New Testament, spiritual more often than means that which is influenced by the Holy Spirit. This means the church is being built up not by humans, but by God himself. And we'll see the implications in a moment. Now, we, we talked about the church being a, a beautiful place, a beautiful home for God and his family to dwell in. We mentioned also that Peter made a reference to the Old Testament temple. Out of curiosity, how many, how many of us have seen the temple before? I don't imagine any of us have because it's been destroyed in 70 AD, and the first one was built in 1066 BC. So none of us were alive then. So how can we appreciate what Peter's saying here? We have one modern example, this building. If you go to that north tower behind you, you'll see a small little plaque. It's a black plaque that was given to us by the Toronto Historical Board. What you'll do, and what you'll see, sorry, excuse me, if you read that plaque, is that the, this church was built in 1878. It's a historical building, a heritage building. And if you were to read that plaque, you would see that it was designed by Langley and Burke in Gothic style and built of Credit Valley stone. 
I'm not into masonry, uh, but Google is very helpful in telling me what's so significant about Credit Valley Stone. And if you're to go to Google and type in Credit Valley Stone, what is it? What you'll see is that Credit Valley Stone is known for its fine, its fine sandpaper-like quality and texture, and its quiet quartz-like sparkle. When you're coming in today at church, you probably saw the sun come out a little bit. If you were to look at our building, and you were to come and put your hand along the wall, what you'll feel is a would feel is a, a warm, soft grain against the palm of your hand, and you'll see a stunning, gentle sparkle from the stone. Peter's point is simple: the physical beauty that you see and you know in such buildings is what should characterize us as a community. Who are we? In one sentence, a beautiful and glorious house for God and his family. Now, we read also that we're holy priests. What's significant about that? Well, holy priest is actually an accent that defines the type of relationship we have with God. See, in, in ancient times, in ancient times, the average Joe and Jane in Jerusalem could only encounter God from a distance as they visited the temple. Mediation happened through priests, priests who were set aside, that's what holy means, and alone granted permission into God's presence. When Peter says that we're a spiritual house and holy priesthood, he's saying that we're not just average Joes and Janes in God's house who have to encounter God from a distance. No, 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 no. We are privileged people who God has welcomed into his unfettered presence, called into glorious relationship, called into magnificent friendship. We are called into fellowship with Almighty God. This should rattle your bones, for you have been given a high honor, a high glory to enter God's presence, to enter into his home. But that's not all. Peter goes on in verse 9 to say that we're a chosen race. If you look down to the text, verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Using more Old Testament language to describe New Testament people, Peter shows us the unrestrained magnitude of God's love for us. Deuteronomy 10, 15, listen, hear, hear what the Bible has to say. The Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, chose a nation, their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Deuteronomy 7, lest we think God's electing love is based on anything in us. Think again. Deuteronomy 7 says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest and weakest of all. Why did God choose us? Because he loved you, says the text, and kept an oath he swore to our fathers. When you read the words chosen race, what that reveals to you is how loved you are. Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century theologian, wrote a beautiful sermon on this, and he notes that verse 9, these descriptors all highlight one thing, that you are loved, that you are loved. Notice how Peter says that we're a royal priesthood and holy nation. This is a reference to Exodus 19.6, where God says that Israel would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Edwards notes that Peter has changed language from kingdom of priests to, what does the text say? Royal priests. What's significant about that? 
What's significant is that God chose to elevate the mere servants of his home to honored friends. Think about this for a moment. We are kings and queens called into fellowship with God, kings and queens who will one day rule with God as vice regents in his holy kingdom to come. 2 Timothy 2 says that as we endure with him, so we will reign with him. In Revelation, you see how we're given crowns. Why? We have an identity such that we are given royal status. Peter goes on to say that we're God's own possession. What's, what's that referring to? Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. Here God declares his people to be his quote-unquote treasured possession. When Peter says that we are God's own possession, he's referring to that treasured object that a king takes, protects, holds dear to his heart, wears on his person. We are the apple of his eye. We are the object of his greatest delight. We're the object of his affections. Verse 9 shows us one thing, and it serves really one purpose, to show you how honored you are, how loved you are. Put this all together, who are we? We are God's beautiful and glorious home and his precious and treasured family. Grace Toronto, this is us. This is who we are. We don't need, and no TV show in this world can tell you who you are. Only God's word will tell you who you truly are. This is who we are. This is us. Let your heart get lost in the wonder of it all, of your identity in God. You might wonder at this time, how can this be? How is this even possible? What's the basis for such a privilege? Our passage tells us in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, look with me to verse 6, behold, I am, say, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How is it that we can receive such a privileged status? There's one answer. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the stone that was rejected and crushed. First Peter teaches us, that all that we have in Christ is ours because we've been united to Christ. Notice how verse 4 begins with talking about Christ being a living stone, and then what does the passage say? We ourselves, likewise, are living stones. Notice how our spiritual sacrifices are offered not through ourselves, but who? Through Jesus Christ. What we see here is Peter's allusion to a theological doctrine called union with Christ. And If you've never heard of that doctrine before, union with Christ is a mysterious doctrine. And one scholar, again, John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished Applied, he he very clearly just says it as it is. It's a hard doctrine to explain. But it's the doctrine that undergirds the entire doctrine of redemption. Union with Christ is a mysterious doctrine that explains how it is that we can receive all the benefits that we have in Christ. And undergirding every moment of our redemption is this reality that all that we have is ours because we are in Christ. We're found in him. We're built on him. This is what Peter means when he says that Jesus is our chosen and precious cornerstone. 
cornerstones are helpful for illustrating uh, union with Christ. And uh, how I understand this is, uh, how I under- come to understand this was actually through a old patient of mine uh, who happened to be a Christian and also a manager at Ellis Don, uh, a big construction company in Canada. Talking about cornerstones in between while we're waiting for his procedure to, to proceed to the next phase, uh, he told me that uh, cornerstones, cornerstones have one function. Yes, it's the first stone set in anything for masonry, but the primary function of a cornerstone is to help determine the shape and form of a building. Building everything around that stone and building on that stone, if the cornerstone was, was crooked, so were the walls as it conformed to the shape of the cornerstone. If the cornerstone was square, so were the walls, as it conformed to the shape of the walls of the cornerstone. So apply this to our Christian lives. Because Christ is the cornerstone and we've been united to him and built on him, all that we have and all that we are necessarily takes after him. As he reigns, because we are in him, so we too reign. As he lives, because we are in him, so we live. As he is beautiful, so we too are going to be made beautiful as we are made beautiful in him. As he is accepted before God, so we are accepted before God. As he is chosen and precious before God, so we are chosen and precious before God. Why? Because we are in him, built on him. It's why, Christians, we can say we can rise with him as we have died with him. We are what we are because we've been united to him, the cornerstone. Implications. Implications. If you have been united to Christ, and if you're a Christian, you have. Embrace our illustrious identity. Do not neglect his gift and embrace your illustrious identity. Christians, in verse 4 and 7, we read that Jesus was rejected, and no doubt hard times will come on us. As our cornerstone was rejected, we can bet our bottom dollar, that we too will experience rejection. But here's the hope. See how Christ was raised and elevated? If we're in him, we too will be raised and elevated. God is building us into something more beautiful than the world could imagine and more magnificent than the world dare fathom. We are God's beautiful and glorious house and his treasured and precious family. And so embrace our illustrious identity. You might be asking, how do we do this? How do we do this? This is a common question. Our passage gives us one hint. We can start by coming to God and coming together as one house and one family. That's verse 4. In verse 4, we see the Greek participle, as you come to him. And if you were to go to blueletterbible.org, it's a free app here, and you're to type in, you know, First uh, Peter chapter 2 and talk about verse 4, type in Greek, you'll see that this Greek participle has a sense of ongoing action. What this means is we can translate the term and the word as you continue coming to him. This has great implications for us, church, because last year and the year before was a very hard year for us. It was especially a hard year for small group ministry. One of the problems we noticed amongst the 39 small groups that we had and that I oversaw was the issue of attendance. A given small group is supposed to have anywhere between 12 to 16 members, and one of the most discouraging things I had to hear from our leaders was how routinely only four to six people would show up to weekly gathering. That's an attendance rate of 33% to 50% at best. 
Amongst the common reasons for not attending were I'm too tired, I'm too busy, or I have something else going on. To be clear, be fair, if you're the four to six people that have been showing up regularly and occasionally can't make it or have to drop that line, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the 50 to 70% of you who came to me at the beginning of the ministry year and said, I want to be part of a small group, but then only showed up maybe once or twice in a year. You say you want to go deeper with your community, but you only show up 50% of the time. I need to ask you, are you really embracing God's family and building into his home? I'm not trying to be funny here. I know some of us will message our small groups ahead of time and let them know that you're not able to make it, and that's good etiquette. It's good etiquette, to be fair. But have you ever thought, have you ever thought about how your messages, being the fifth message that a person, a leader, has to read in an hour, how that makes them feel? Some of us don't even message our small group members anymore. Instead, we opt for silence because it's gotten awkward writing the same message over and over again. We want to be charitable. We really do. But I also want to ask you, on behalf of my leaders, have you ever stopped to consider how you might be hurting your brothers and sisters with your absence, with your messages, and especially your silence? Furthermore, have you ever thought about how awkward you make it for the rest of the group? when you do show up out of nowhere and expect people to engage you like you hadn't been gone for months. Over half of my team of 50 expressed how discouraged they were in my year-end reviews and my follow-up conversations with them because of low commitment. It crushed my soul because these people gave up hours in their weeks for you. Is this how we show our commitment to our loved ones? Is this how we treat our grandparents, our moms, our dads, our brothers and sisters? If it's not acceptable with them, why is it acceptable for us to treat our spiritual relatives bond by the blood of Christ this way? Embracing our identity in Christ is simple. It starts with showing up. And I mean really showing up. If you've emailed me or you filled out a GG form, we're going to try to connect you to a small group this year. And if you've had a history of being absent or not showing up, I want to encourage you, it's time to change that. It's time to repent. It's time to honor Christ and his family by showing up. Honor the small group commitment level that we stated very clearly for you. Life groups, discipleship groups, is a 70% commitment. Connect groups, it's a 50%. Encourage your members, encourage your leaders by showing up. In fact, go one step further. Don't just meet the minimum requirement. Do the maximum. Make time in your schedule and resolve yourself to show up. And when you do show up, can I encourage you, don't just show up thinking that you're going to be built up. Show up prepared to also build up. It's a two-way street. We talked about community being built up by the Holy Spirit, that, that our community is being built up by the Holy Spirit, excuse me. One way that the Spirit does that 
is through spiritual gifts, equipping each and every single one of you with powerful gifts to build up his church. You know, one question that people always ask when they read this text and they see the idea of spiritual sacrifices is asking, you know, the people ask, you know, what does it mean? What does Peter mean when he says spiritual sacrifices? Uh, One of our, uh, during our preacher's lunch when we're preparing for this passage, one of the pastors asked and said, you know, I've been in seminary for a very long, like I went to seminary for four years and I still not, I'm still not very sure what, what spiritual sacrifices mean. The answer isn't complicated, actually. If you read the New Testament, and you see the word spiritual sacrifice, what you'll see is that these words are always used in context of God's people applying their God-given gifts as an act of worship for building up the church. I'll give you a couple examples. Romans 12, verse 1. If you flip open your Bible, turn to Romans 12, you'll see Paul say, the Apostle Paul say, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now keep reading that chapter. What you'll see is Paul called the people to live holy lives. And then right after that, what comes? A whole list of spiritual gifts. Do you see that? Spiritual sacrifices is the application of your spiritual gifts. It's a pleasing aroma to God for building up his community. Philippians 4 is a second example. Here Paul is talking about the church and how they had offered him a gift, a monetary gift, to build up him and the church. Here we see the church applying a very specific gift, the gift of giving. That's a spiritual sacrifice, giving. Hebrews 13 talks about how we can use words, words as a means of not only blessing God, but blessing one another. The entire chapter is all about hortatory or encouraging remarks of how we can build up the church. Exhortation, words of encouragement, it's a spiritual gift for spiritual sacrifice. Spiritual sacrifices in the New Testament is simply the way, simple, that's a simple way of saying, use your spiritual gifts Use them to worship God and to bless his people. If you're a gifted administrator, I want to give you you all a vision for how you might be able to use your gifts in small group. If you're a gifted administrator, can I invite you to volunteer yourself to help your leader organize small group socials? Help your leader send out weekly communications because most of us like, I, I suck. I suck at administration, to be honest. I don't like doing it. People think I'm great at it, but I only do it because I have to. Help me out, my small group, by sending my emails out for me. I'm not joking. I'm serious. We can help our leaders in these practical ways. If you're gifted in hospitality, consider hosting a small group. Open up your home. Open up your living room. Open up your kitchen. If you're a great cook, welcome people into your home. Bless them. Build them up that way. If you're gifted in in, in teaching, help your leader by volunteering to facilitate sessions. Our small group leaders, all of them are volunteers. They have work, work schedules like yours. Give them a week off by teaching, by helping them teach for one week. If you got the gift of encouragement, Can I encourage you? Open up your mouth and let ribbons of grace pour out from your lips to the people in your community. Encourage them. If you've got gifts in mercy, can I encourage you to take the people in your small group by the hand and bring them towards mercy ministry? Help them see how they can get involved in the city. Help them see how they can get involved in the church. Use your gifts. If you're an artist, can I encourage you to use your gifts to build up the church? Maybe you're an artist like some of our musicians here. You can lead your small groups in song, in music, 
in joyful singing to God. Maybe you're a painter, a sculptor, whatever your craft. Can I encourage you to use this as an avenue to lead your group in a devotion, to help them see the God who is truly beautiful, who is truly glorious, who is truly brilliant, more brilliant than the art that you do? Use your art as like a railway to point people back home to God. Embracing our identity begins with showing up and sharing our God-given gifts as spiritual sacrifices pleasing to Him. And so Christians, what are your gifts? How can you serve? How can God use you to build up his church into the beautiful community that we're called to be? Here's our first point. Christians, embrace. Embrace our illustrious identity. Now, for those of you who are investigating in faith, our text gives you a choice. We see it in verse 7 to 8. In the sovereignty of God, you either have a choice to reject or accept Jesus and his message today. See, the honored identity that we learn about today is only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. For those who reject him and his message, our passage says what awaits you and what you're doing is stumbling. The Greek word for stumble doesn't just mean like a small trip up. No, the root word contains the idea of mourning, lamenting. And what Peter wants to warn you and plead with you is to see that your stumbling your stumbling will be something at the end of the age that will make you lament your existence when Christ comes back. You might not see it now, but when the veil lifts and Christ comes back and the clouds part, elsewhere in the Bible we see that God will judge the disobedient and their fall will be great. In his sovereignty, God has allowed and appointed you to walk this life apart from him. That's verse 8. But today, as you sit here in this church and as you sit at home listening to the sermon, God has decided to share this message with you. He's decided that you should hear this invitation. Our culture has told you and lied to you, saying that you can discover your true authentic self by looking to yourself and in yourself. And the problem with that is that if this is true, your journey will never end. Heraclitus, an ancient Greek philosopher, speaking of the human condition, once said and observed that change is the only constant in life. And we know this to be true. We'll always be in the state of becoming and never be. And you might think, you might think today that you've discovered your true self. But if you live long enough, and you look back 10 years, 20 years from now, you'll see that who you thought you once were in the past is not actually who you are today or who you will be then. You will see that you're a different person. God's answer to our culture's identity crisis is to give us new identities that transcends this world, an identity that will be revealed in full glory when he comes back. Peter wants us to see today that the answer to who you are and what you are is not found in yourself, but found in another person, in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So what's the implication and application for you today? Embrace. Embrace our illustrious identity. Give your life to Christ. Embrace the cornerstone. Now, as we move to our second point, we, we come to the point of engaging our peculiar purpose. Our second point is engage our peculiar purpose. As we turn to verse 9, we see God's purpose for the church. Let's look, with, look, uh, look at the text here again, verse 9. 
It says, but you are a chosen race. I'm going to read from the beginning for flow. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If you were to open up a study Bible and you look at the footnotes, what you'll see is that excellencies can be translated as virtues. So plug that word in. Why? Why did God give us these identities? Why? To proclaim the virtues the excellent virtues of him who called you out of darkness. The purpose of God giving us such a glorious identity is so that we would reveal to the world around us how excellent he is, how glorious he is, how beautiful he is, how good he is, how patient he is, how kind he is, how gentle he is, how holy he is like billboards and skyscrapers that display and herald the excellencies of our God, our purpose is to say to the world, behold your God. I said our purpose is peculiar. Why? Because our, 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 the, the word peculiar means uncommon and strange, and God's purpose for us will feel uncommon and strange oftentimes as it goes against the grain of our culture and what the culture has to say about our purpose in life. As a generation, let's be real. We live in the age of authenticity. We live in this culture. We can't get away from it. And that influence has oftentimes made many of us, to put it nicely, self-absorbed and a little self-centered. Our energy and our focus is often caught up in how we can discover our true self and express our true self. And as people in the culture, again, that's normal to be expected because That's what happens when you marinate in such a place for so long. But what Peter wants us to see is that we were made for something more. And that as we root ourselves in Christ, we will begin to experience a transformation unlike none other. We'll be able to see ourselves thinking less about ourselves and more about the one who redeemed us. We've been made to show the breathtaking beauty of God And so let's, with our remaining time, explore and see if we can get a vision for what that looks like for us in our lives. Grace Toronto, how might it look like for you to declare the excellencies of him who saved you and gave you this new identity? Young adults, I see a lot of new young faces here. Welcome to the city. Welcome to Toronto. You're at a unique crossroads in your life. You get to take the first step in determining who you will be for the rest of your lives and how you will do your job that you're training for in the future. In your area of study, how can this season of life be a preparatory ground for you to not just do whatever profession or calling you have, your vocation, but how can you do your job in a way that declares the excellencies of God? Is this a season for you to explore how you can do this? Is this a season for you to get equipped for this? Is this a season for you to try to figure out what's next? What does it look like for you to exalt Jesus with your unique gifts and opportunities before you? Are you in healthcare? Are you in public service? Are you an artist? What does it look like for you? Maybe you're done school, maybe you're no longer a student, maybe you're, 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 you're working in the city. Maybe you have a young family, maybe you're a retiree trying to figure this out. What does it look like for you to exalt Jesus with your life. Let's go back to the few categories I just mentioned. Healthcare workers. Healthcare workers, how can you use your God-given gifts of compassion and clinical skill 
to point people to God, the most compassionate and skilled physician for the soul. Are you in public service? How can you display God's virtues of truth, justice, and order in your work? Are you an artist? How can you use your craft to, to function like, to, to be like sunbeams that people can trace back to the source of all brilliance, to God? Are you at home with a young family? How can you use your gifts as a mother and father to create a warm place, a warm home for people to come and see what being part of God's family is like? God's peculiar purpose challenges us to think less about expressing ourselves and more about expressing God to the world. And so I want to invite you today to think on that. How can God be using you for this peculiar purpose? As we close, I want to go back to that little plaque that we have in the North Tower there. Uh, remember how it said that it was designed, uh, this building was designed by Langley and Burke in Gothic style? Well, Henry, Henry Langley, Henry Langley was a renowned Canadian architect who literally shaped the landscape of our society and city. He, credit, he is credited with designing over 70 historic buildings in our city, most of them churches. And if you, were to rock around, if you were to walk around town and look at these buildings, you'll see that Langley's name is on most of them, stamped onto a black plaque. But what you won't see, though, is the name of his Christian mentor, William Hayes. Hayes was a deeply committed Anglican who loved Jesus with all his heart. He himself was a master architect of the Gothic revival study and have uh, revival style, sorry, and having a dream of influencing generations of architects after him and hoping to inspire buildings that would that would cause the world to pause and to think of God. Hayes employed his gifts, not just as an architect, but also as a teacher. He took on Langley as one of his early pupils and disciples and taught him everything he knew. What was the result? In this beautiful city of ours, for the last 100 years, 140, 1878, for the last 100 years, and until God comes back, hopefully, we will have historical buildings like this to cause people in our streets to come by and to pause, come by, to pause and think of God, to come by, to come in, and to hear the message from God like you have today. The message of the gospel, the salvation of our soul in Christ Jesus. Are you a university student? Are you an employee at an office? Are you a parent at home, a retiree with your whole life ahead of you? How will you proclaim God's name with your life? with your gifts, with your profession, with your calling? How will you declare his excellent virtues? May God help us dream big dreams, and may God help us dare to do it. As we conclude, today we learned in 1 Peter that we have an illustrious identity, and we also have a peculiar purpose. May we, may we please Grace Toronto Church, may we please embrace it and engage it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please bow with me in prayer. God, our prayer is simple. Help us as a beautiful community. Help us as a beautiful community to embrace our illustrious identity and engage our peculiar purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
We now have a time for Q&A. Uh, we have a couple minutes for questions and answers. Uh, so I'm going to invite Dan to come up and read a few questions for me, uh, just so it gives me some time to think. I, I really do enjoy this part of the service. And uh, thankfully, because Dan is our senior pastor, if you ask a hard question that I can't answer, I'm just going to look to this, this good man and say, Dan, you take it from here and then step off the stage. <laughs> I'm kidding. Dan, let's, let's, let's take a stab and see what we got. Well, you have a very compassionate audience because they have no questions for you. Actually, oh. should we make up some and see if we can stump them? <laughs> we'll give it a minute or no? Um, I don't see any questions here. Wonderful. So. We do have a hand, so maybe uh, we can just let's have do one that. hand. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry? The Watchers in Old Testament. You'll have to give me a reference more specifically. And um, I'm not sure what reference you're specifically referring to. I, I do want to answer questions specifically to this text, but after the service, how about we can talk one-on-one -on -one and we can open up our Bibles together and find that reference and maybe that'll give me some context to help you. Thank you, though. So I have a question for you. Sure thing. Um, <laughs> Oh, gosh, this is not good. This is not good. I'm just going to step down and have a seat, okay, everyone? <laughs> you, you, you had some great applications about how to, um, uh, how to be one people mm -hmm. uh, in the first point, and you had some great individual questions for us, searching questions about how might we use our gifts to help the body of Christ. Talk a little bit, if you could, about what does it mean for not us as individuals, but for us as a collective people of God to declare the praises of Jesus to the world. Sure. Um, I, I think there's a couple components to this. Um, a, as a church, for example, a, as a body, we can come together and manifest and display God's virtues in various ministry aspects that we have uh, with our external facing ministries like GCMJ. Uh, the Grace Center for Mercy and Justice, or the GCA, the Grace Center for the Arts. Um, and for example, with GCMJ, uh, one of the things that we, we, we do is we have partnerships, partnerships with uh, agencies in the city, and how we can serve and participate as one body is by actually coming together and spending our time together as a collective to volunteering our time and, and, and plugging away in these ministries to, to, to manifest Christ to the people who are in need in our city, to reach out to them and be the hands and feet that literally bring good news to them. Uh, I know in November, and I'm just going to share this now so that I, thank you, Dan, for the great question. I didn't even think of this until now. In November 12th, in November 12th, our church is going to be having an event on a Saturday hosted by the GCMJ and small group ministry where we're going to invite uh, certain organizations like Safe Families or Pregnancy Care Center to come and do a session on how we can help, uh, safe, uh, how we can help safe families and be safe families for children and families in the community who need uh, people, that, loving people that can come around them and support them in their times of need. Uh, Pregnancy Care Center, how can we help young moms you know, young moms who are in tough situations, how can we as a community support them and love them and embrace them in their time of need? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I encourage you, something as simple as showing up to come and learn, but then also coming together to go out and volunteer and get to know families that need us and, and participate with them and help them. That's a very practical way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, I think that's all the time we have for questions. We do want to move to communion. So I'm going to invite the music team to come on up and lead us in a song of reflection. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll pray 
for a prayer of reflection. I'll pray a prayer of reflection, excuse me. God, we now come to the song of reflection, and as we meditate on you, the cornerstone, God, would you begin to unveil the glorious reality that is packaged in that, that is held within that reality. And would it warm our souls and lead us to lift our eyes and open our mouths to sing with deep joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please rise as we sing Cornerstone.